to Inside Sponsorship, the show that provides sponsorship professionals with advice, insights and news so they can maximise their commercial programmes and achieve best practice. We've all seen it, the awesome creative execution in a sports sponsorship. Sometimes it's big and bold and complex, while other times it's so simple, both in idea and execution, that we think to ourselves, why didn't I think of that? Those executions engage and they excite us, not just as consumers, but as professionals in the sponsorship industry, even if you don't work in the sports sponsorship sector specifically. There's no doubt that the global sports sector is booming. Esports has quickly established itself as an important player with so much potential, and that catches the eye of brands. Then there are sports that are venturing out of their homelands more and more as they try to engage with global audiences who can now stream games from anywhere in the world. For sponsorship, it's been recently reported that global brand spend on sports sponsorships will grow to $65 billion in 2019. That's an average of 4% growth per year since 2014. As a result of this continued growth, this year, Cairns Lions created a new category that focused exclusively on sport. The entertainment lines for sports celebrate creativity that taps into fan culture and leverages the power of sports in connecting people to brands with the jury rewarding excellence in breakthrough creativity within the sports marketing ecosystem. And this includes use of effective strategic planning, sponsorship, brand management, media entertainment and or talent. Our guest this episode is Ben Hartman, Managing Director at Octagon, who was a judge for the very first ever entertainment lines for sport and whose job was to define what best-in-class work looks like in the category and ultimately what was the standard that future work would be measured against. I'm Daniel Oyston and welcome to episode 73 of Inside Sponsorship. I hope you're doing well and as always, thanks for tuning in and spending some of your valuable time with me, but more importantly, our awesome guests. Some regular listeners have gotten in contact to say hi and that means they get a shout out. First is Ryan Miller from Protocol Sports Marketing in Toronto, Canada, who wrote, Hi Daniel, I love the podcast. Just finished listening to episode 72. Our agency is looking at getting into esports and the insights Ben gave were really helpful. Keep up the great work. Ryan, glad you found that useful. And I know Ryan and Ben have connected online as well. So that's really, really cool. Justin LeBrock from Coin Gaming Group also got in touch and wrote, Hi there, can you please pass on to the podcast gang that they are doing a fantastic job. Whilst I'm client side of the sponsorship game, I'm in the midst of signing my third international facing deal this year, including front of shirt for an EPL club. So it's crazy times. Please pass on to the podcast guys that I listen religiously and actually take note on what they're saying keep it up and thank you for helping client side understand a bit of the ins and outs that's so cool justin you're probably uh taking better notes than i do at this end sounds like you are doing great so thanks for getting in touch and keep up the good work finally Stuart hum head of Qantas golf club and manager operations and delivery for Qantas ventures connected on linkedin with a short note that said hi daniel i'm a big fan of your podcast and i'm looking forward to connecting best wishes thanks again for connecting on linkedin ben and thanks 
thanks to everyone who comes on this show and creates the amazing content that you, the listeners, just seem to enjoy so much. It is really great fun making this for you. As I said earlier, our guest this episode is Ben Hartman, Managing Director at Octagon, who was a judge at the first ever Entertainment Lines for Sport. But first, also joining us on the show to discuss his latest blog is Core Software's Commercial Manager for Australasia, Daniel Ferguson-Hill, who has also taken a look at awards and is asking, is sponsorship keeping up with award trends? Here's Daniel. Daniel, welcome to the show. First thing I do in the morning when I wake up, in addition to trying to figure out what day it actually is, whether I have to go to work or kids soccer or something like that is, I put my Apple Watch back on before I head to the shower. What's the first thing you do? Is it, I'm thinking meditation. Is that what you do first thing in the morning? No, and if it's not battling the bed space with the kids, like most of my generation, the first thing I'm often doing in the morning is rolling over and mindlessly scrolling through a social feed, whether it's Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. And as I scroll, my attention is usually fixated on a small viral piece of content, usually in video format that is doing the rounds. There's tons of research that also suggests I'm, I'm probably not alone, uh, <laughs> that this is where the rest of society's attention is as well. And this all ha- also happens to be the goldmine where brands are spending an ever-growing amount of attention and resources attempting to engage and communicate with us. They take hold of where our attention is and just run with new and exciting trends to ensure that we stay engaged and interested in their message for just as long as possible. So that makes sense. And I can see how those who maybe they're not as strong-willed as I am with their phone, that they would pick up their phone and it'd be the first thing they do. I think my wife does that. But why is that an important thing to know for those of us working in sponsorship? Well, with sponsorship now solidified as a a powerful weapon in the marketing strategy artillery, it, it needs to be flexible and adaptable enough to keep up with these trends or changes in overall strategy. I sat through a, a briefing from Ben Hartman, uh, Octagon's uh, APAC MD, a few weeks ago. And as we delved into what it takes to deliver an award-winning campaign at Cannes, I couldn't help but compare you know, what the vast majority of sponsorship deals look like in comparison to what I was seeing presented. Uh, it got me thinking, is the sponsorship industry actually keeping up with award-winning marketing trends? Uh, but then the question I really needed to be asking was, are our sponsorship deals flexible enough to adapt to change? Well, with that question, what are those areas that we need to focus on to answer the question of are our sponsorship deals flexible enough to adapt to change that, that's needed when it's presented by the market? Yeah, for me, we really need to lift the lid on and, and look at two key areas moving forward with, with the first being audience targeting and distribution strategy as, as much of a, a tongue twister that is. But when we build a sponsorship deal, its purpose is simple help the brand deliver a message to a specific audience that they otherwise didn't have access to. And look, if it's a good deal, it'll also help the brand achieve some of its objectives or challenges too. But it's how we're delivering that message and who we're delivering it to that needs some serious updating. And and I mean, the, the hype around targeting and retargeting is real. If you don't know what that is, Google it really fast. And if you don't know what that is, it is when you, know, you might be doing something online and then the little ads for shoes or bikes or toys follow you around the internet. Very, very powerful stuff, that retargeting. Oh, absolutely. That's why uh, our, our director of customer success, Sam Irvine, keeps seeing swans robes popping up <laughs> everywhere he goes. But uh, being able to target a specific audience, deliver a specific message at a specific time just for that group of people is where a lot of attention needs to be for both rights holders and brands. 
we can no longer just rely on building that digital campaign that sits on a team website for two weeks and then report on web traffic and click-throughs. If that's all brands wanted to do, they could simply pump the sponsorship spend into Facebook or Google Ads. And it's a good point. The award-winning campaigns we're seeing at Cannes, particularly this year, were those that are elevated through their use of targeting methods and, and use of insights or data. The teams behind these campaigns are constantly asking themselves, who are we talking to, how are we talking to them, and is it working? So if you haven't started thinking about audience targeting or how you're delivering a sponsored message, just start with the basics. Who, what, when, where, how, and why. Okay, so we start with the basics. Audience targeting and distribution strategy is the first one. Like you said, start with the basics. What's the second area we need to focus on to answer that question of are our sponsorship deals flexible enough to adapt to change? So number two is brand integration. And simply look at how many sponsorship deals can you think of off the top of your head that just looks super forced? It, you know, it, it just doesn't work. The problem is most of the listeners probably just rattled off way too many than we'd like to admit right now. Sponsorship is at a time whereby brands are are really fast becoming integrated with how fans are are consuming sport and entertainment. And look, brand integration isn't new and it doesn't have to be overly sophisticated, but it's often overlooked when rights holders aren't flexible in how they deliver the sponsorship. And because of the multitude of ways we now consume things, the proliferation of audience targeting has created a big shift towards an omni-channel approach to sponsorship delivery. And this is being where a brand's message is delivered across multiple platforms in a format and tone specific to that platform. You know, for inspiration, think Marriott, Bonvoy and Manchester United, uh, or even perhaps something simpler like the AFL's Telstra 50. You can't, you literally can't not say the brand's name is part of the sentence. (laughs) The message here is, is don't logo slap bring the brand into what you want to achieve with the asset and come up with something creative. Find a way to make their imagery part of the visual journey and overall experience. I like that comment you made that it doesn't have to be overly sophisticated, but it's it's often overlooked. It's really obvious, like you said, with forced sponsorships. It's really obvious when it's overlooked but you don't have to spend too much time and, and overcomplicate uh, actually integrating it for you to move so far away from that forced brand integration that it actually looks like it, it works. It's not something big and magical that takes lots of hours and resources. It just takes a little bit of thinking. So with those two things covered off, how do we wrap it up and bring it all together? Yeah, so look, it, it, it's execution and that's probably one of the most important things and I don't mean to sound like a broken record but you know, t- traditionally customers went to the brand. As a marketer, you knew how to deliver the message, what to expect when it happened but now brands look for customers in their spaces. Uh, you know, we, we look to take advantage of whatever trend is most prolific at the time and trends can be really hard to grab hold of in sponsorship simply because they disappear just as quickly as they appear. You know, look at Paddy Power recently. They took full advantage of virality with their sponsorship of Huddersfield Town. <laughs> I know, loved it. In in an incredibly cluttered market with a really fairly simple execution, they were able to flood countless social feeds with an amazing PR stunt linked to something meaningful. I know between us, we probably tagged each other in multiple different articles and videos and videos. It, it just went nuts. And, and what I loved about it, I'm a, a passionate Leeds United supporter, so there's a rivalry with Huddersfield bordering on on hatred potentially with some people on in the Facebook groups. But what was amazing was that stunt by Paddy Power with Huddersfield and the shirt sponsorship was flooding other clubs' 
social media channels. So in the Leeds Facebook groups, there was multiple posts poking fun at Huddersfield and Paddy Power for what they were trying to execute with people not even realising that it was a hoax. Yeah, and, and I think if, if everyone's actually had a look at that campaign, that part of it was, was just one. Uh, there was multiple aspects to what they did and how they delivered it. And they sort of prolonged the effect, which was really cool to see. So... You know, and, and I take my hat off to Huddersfield uh, for actually Same being guess. involved to that. Yeah. Um, so, And look, the message from, from their side is, look, don't wait for the half-yearly or, or end-of-year reviews to discuss and explore strategies around how to deliver your sponsorship effectively. Bring your brands and agencies into the conversation and work together. I mean, after all, their jobs are literally to stay on top of these trends to ensure that they can speak to an audience. Have you got any trips coming up that people should be aware of if they want to catch up for breakfast, lunch, coffee... A run around the lake with you? Well, maybe not a run. Uh, but, yeah, definitely. Uh, I've got a couple of trips to, to Brisbane. Uh, might be looking at Adelaide in a couple of months. There's always Sydney that's up the road as well. Very good. So if you're in one of those locations and you want to catch up, just you know, talk about industry topics with Daniel. He will buy you a coffee. Very interesting. Thanks for the chat, Daniel. And listeners, if you'd like to read through Daniel's thoughts in detail, just head along to the resources section at coresoftware.com. Thanks for joining us, mate. Thanks, mate. As I mentioned at the top of the show, it has been recently reported that global brand spend on sports sponsorships will grow to $65 billion in 2019. That's an average of 4% growth per year since 2014. As a result of the continued growth in the entire sports sector, though, this year, Cairns Lions created a new category that focused exclusively on sport. The entertainment lines for sport celebrate creativity that taps into fan culture and leverages the power of sports in connecting people to brands with the jury rewarding excellence in breakthrough creativity within the sports marketing ecosystem. This includes use of effective strategic planning, sponsorship, brand management, media entertainment and or talent. Our guest this episode is Ben Hartman, Managing Director at Octagon, who was a judge for the first ever Entertainment Lines for Sport and whose job was to define what best-in-class work looked like in the category and ultimately what was the standard that future work would be measured against. Here's Ben. Ben, welcome to the show. It's great to have you, and I'm excited about the chat ahead, which is all about the entertainment lines for sport, which celebrate and award creativity that connects fans, sports, and brands. But firstly, as a little bit of an icebreaker, what was your most memorable award that you received in sport growing up? Yeah, thanks for having us on, Daniel. It's um, it's always nice to be able to come talk about the work. We we get kind of locked up talking about spreadsheets and business a little bit too much in the industry. So to um, to get back to the core of why we got into it in the first place is is pretty awesome. But from my personal level, I mean, I guess most of the awards I've been lucky enough to get in sport come from sitting on this side of the fence, not from my prolific sporting career. Um, for some reason, I think my sporting talents got sadly unrecognised by my coaches and, and the other people that saw me play. So I had about 15 years of soccer, but I was a fairly goal-shy striker. Um, so that, that put an end to that. And I became pretty hairy at the age of about 15, and my swimming career got knocked on its head. So I'd, I'd have to say that my uh, my most memorable moment, whilst it probably went unrewarded, was uh, a catch I took in the under-9Bs cricket team, which saw us beat the uh, the local bullies that were about three years undefeated. So it was a bit of my uh, Mighty Ducks moment, I'd say. Outstanding. Did that ball go in your pocket? Do you still have it? Uh, look, in my head, it actually was this screamer of a catch on the boundary. I think it was a little lollipop that went into the slips. But uh, yeah, I do still have the ball. 
Let's move on to the next icebreaker question. What has been your favourite campaign in the last 12 months or so? The obvious part is that you, you spend so much time on this podcast, I think we're going to talk about some of the awarded work, but sometimes it's the piece of your work that don't get rewarded that I found that I really love this year. And there was one that I found myself watching a lot. Um, it was around the, um, the FIFA World Cup in Russia, and it was by a brand called Wish, who are an online e-commerce platform. And they, um, they produced a campaign called Time on Your Hands. And I think the notion of it was really about, they went and found a lot of these high-profile footballers, you know, people like Buffon and Van Perkey, who some of the best players in the game, but their team hadn't qualified for the World Cup. So these players had all this extra time on their hands. So they were all learning new skills. You know, some of them were learning how to be a gardener. Some of them were learning how to cook. Some of them were learning how to be hairdressers. And the campaign was brilliant. It came to life in mostly digital form. Um, but I think it was the, the self-deprecating comedy, um, the roster of talent. There were these beautiful Easter eggs hidden in the work for football fans who would have only picked them up if you were a fan of the sport. And the creative all linked to each other, every single piece. The players were tweeting each other. They were sending it to each other within the actual you know, construct of the content. And for me, I found myself watching it over and over again. And funnily enough, I think the other one that comes, it probably hits a bit closer to home for us because we were um, our, our team in the UK were involved in it. And it only launched last week, but it was Paddy Power's Save Our Shirt campaign. And it's got a bit of noise over the last couple of weeks with Paddy Power sponsoring Huddersfield Football Club and putting a huge sash on their shirt with Paddy Power written across it and playing in a friendly match. And really that was just drawing attention to the fact that Paddy Power unsponsoring the shirt and giving a, a blank shirt back to the fans because they're trying to showcase that you know, the sport is for the fan and not for the, the corporates and particularly betting companies that are involved at the moment. And just seeing what goes into a campaign like that, the, the level of effort from the team, the pride that happens in an office when – you know, that all hits the hits the mark and you see all the social comments coming from it and the noise in the industry. It's You know, you, there's, a, there's a huge amount of pride attached to something like that. So how about you, Daniel? Have you got a favourite? I'm not sure it's so much a favourite. Actually, I'll give you a favourite and I'll then also give you one that is probably the most effective on me. So I'm pretty health conscious. I exercise a lot. I really watch my diet. Porridge is really, really good for you, but I hate it, but I eat it every day because it's really good for you. I'm that sort of person. I don't eat a lot of meat. I don't eat a lot of takeaway. But boy, oh boy, do the KFC ads get me thinking about <laughs> KFC a lot. And I'm worried, right, because cricket season's only around the corner and it's just KFC in the cricket the whole time. And sooner or later, I buckle and I just go and eat KFC. So I don't know what happens to those people that like to eat a lot of KFC where they're eating more KFC. But but trying to bring somebody towards that brand who's on the fringe, uh, it definitely works. Probably not cost effective just to get me to buy KFC once or twice a year. <laughs> but uh, I, I do I do get into it. I like I like the the fun irreverent creative that they have with take my money, and the kids walk around the house saying shut up and take my money. So that's 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 a really <laughs> effective one uh, for me in terms of trying to move the needle with somebody who's pretty staunch with their health. But 
I would say my favorite one, it's not in the last 12 months, it's probably a couple of years old now. I don't know if you remember it, but two guys walk into a little corner store, they're buying some morning tea, one guy gets a pie. I'm probably getting this story a little bit wrong, but there's some sauce involved and some extra sauce and they go and sit outside the window and there's there was an older lady uh, behind the counter who served them. They take their pies outside, they sit down, they put their sauce on and one guy has got a phone number with the name Denise on his serviette and he looks back through the window and he sees Denise and she's making the little sexy lips and winking and wobbling her head and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> Just an interesting, entertaining ad, but I'm the sort of person who notices that there's not number plates on a car in a movie and think that's really weird. And so I saw, I paused it and texted that number and a person pretending to be Denise texted back. And I just thought, wow, that's really cool for four and 20 pies. And she just sends me a, a photo of her face. How are you going, sexy? Hope you're having a good week. And I just love that. I, I showed that to lots and lots of people and told that story to lots and lots of people. So most effective KFC is really getting to me. But the four and 21 with texting Denise uh, for some extra sauce was uh, one of my favorites over the last couple of years. <laughs> It's just brilliant how they um, they engage you like that as well. You know, we're so used to passive advertising for so long, but something like that where actually you get rewarded for being actively involved in it is brilliant. And I think brands have to come from that space of, of wanting to say yes to some things that really push the boundary because that's what ultimately engages people. So I think this question will give really insightful response from you, seeing that you have your head filled with so much creativity and great examples and brand knowledge from your time with the awards. So if you could control the budget and strategy of any brand in the world right now with a focus on sponsorship, obviously, who would it be and what would you do? This is a funny one because I think we um, we use this actually in a lot of our interview questions and ask some of our candidates that come in something similar. And I think that uh, you would have been pretty hard to find someone not answer Red Bull to that question for the last five years. It's quite amazing the response that would have been, well, I would love to have done what they've done and how brave they are and the content they produce. But I think we've seen a change in that over the last few years and even from a personal level, I think I'm pretty fortunate we work with, with some huge global brands like MasterCard and Standard Chartered who are at the forefront of sponsorship and what they're doing in, in the sporting landscape. And the role they're playing for fans is starting to mirror the role their brands played in our life. And, and I love doing that. But if it was a brand that uh, I guess I had full remit and control over, I'd actually have to start with a brand that I'm passionate about and that had a clear direction in who they were. Because I think we're seeing this morphing now of categories that brands play in and the role they play in our life. You know, banks are doing similar things to insurance companies and it's all starting to come together a little bit. So the brand purpose that stands out for me is really what you're going to be able to do with a sponsorship. So for those that know me, I think they'd be pretty unsurprised to think that the brand I'd love to do it for would be Patagonia. And, and I think for me, it's in its simplest form, it's a brand that's about leaving something in a better place than you found it. And I think if you applied that notion to a sponsorship or a partnership and about how you can make it better and how you could improve it and how you can leave it better than when you actually first got there, I think the creative outcomes would be immense. I think that's a, a great vision to have to leave something better than how you found it. Now, Ben, during the judging of the entertainment lines for sport, did you see any trends in sponsorship assets that were being activated to create the best work? Were there any trends there? I think the big 
trend was that the best work was produced, started with a brilliant idea and not actually a sponsorship asset. The idea of actually knowing what you wanted to do with something and be able to develop that out and then work out what were the best assets from a sponsorship to be able to bring it to life. The work that did that was significantly more powerful than the work that was just how do we use an asset that we've already got in our kit bag. And probably quite often some of those assets were just sort of thrown in a package, weren't they? Is it like going day to day, that's what happens is people sit there, they're looking for creative ideas. How do we use those assets? And and some of the assets haven't been aligned to the objectives and what that brand wants to create. They're just thrown in there and then people are like, oh, geez, we have to use them, don't they? Yeah, traditionally, you know, that's, that was the remit of rights holders. They had packages that sat on a shelf and they carved up their commercial assets to how they'd like to go to market and how they could make the most money. And I think we are seeing a change in that now and that change is being led by brands who are wanting to use partnerships in different ways and not just look at the IP or the experiences, but also actually getting integrated into the platform itself. So that is changing, but I think all over the world, we still see some very traditional approaches to this. I'd agree. We're seeing the evolution of an omni-channel approach to activating sponsorship campaigns due to different platforms engaging different audiences and in different ways, sometimes simultaneously like when people are watching TV but they're on their phones on social media at the same time. Is there a platform you saw that created the most engaging results? I think brands are developing campaigns that are utilising assets rather than just building these simple activations to their sponsorships. And for me, I think that's a combination of a couple of things. I think you've got the continued growth of the sporting industry and fandom, and it's really unique because it's still really the only platform that's driving a live audience. It's still appointment to view on TV, um, and that's quite different and separated from, from other platforms today. And I think at the same time, we've got this decrease in marketing budgets that are happening around the world and, and brands are, are being more conscious of how they're spending their marketing dollars. And so what's happening is there's this consolidation between traditional brand campaigns and sponsorship activations because brands can't afford to do both. And that itself shows that sport's the platform. You know, you don't watch sport just on TV or at a stadium or, or check out the scores on your phone. If you're a fan of sport, you're touching it on multi-channels. So the fact that now brands are just mirroring the behaviour of fans is why we've got this omni-channel approach to everything. There's a zeitgeist at the moment that the use of IP is viewed as the single most powerful asset a brand can leverage in its sponsorship activation. What's your view? Do you agree with that? I don't actually. No, I think the most powerful asset that you can use is the one that brings your idea that's going to drive your objective to life. So for some brands, that's IP, and, and that makes sense because it's about sharing of equity. It's about differentiating yourself from your competitors and, and driving brand salience. But for other brands, the most powerful asset could be the branding still, depending where you are on your, your life cycle of the, band, um, of the brand. It could be the experiential assets that you get that you're going to amplify. So I think we, uh, we attach a significant value to IP in the industry, and we should. It's the one part that separates partnerships from any other form of marketing. However, it's only as powerful as what you're going to do with it. Let's focus back in on the awards. How did the judging 
work for the entertainment lines for sport when you have over 700 entries does a, a second panel whittle them down for you and i'm also interested in what interaction you had with the other judges how did it all work did you get together to judge the finalists and i also want some goss i want to know whether there, there was much heated debate behind closed doors Judging took place over a few different phases. So you start with this pre-judging, which is before you even get to CAM, and that really is to, to make sure that your time there together as a jury, because you do get together as a group, is as most efficient as you can possibly imagine. If you think about you know 700 pieces of work, we had such varied content that we were reviewing, you know, because the, the one link in the sport category was the fact that it had to be about sport. You know, so we were looking at outdoor campaigns, we had feature-length films, we had experiential stunts and a whole lot of two-minute case films. So when you tally all that up, even in pre-judging, we probably spent about 100 hours just looking at work before we even got together. So once you've done that, you then, you know, five days before the festival starts over in Cairns, the, the jury gets together and you really have that process. We had four days in a room together. Um, the first couple of days is literally just going through the reams of work that you haven't seen yet and, and making sure that, you know, because in pre-judging, you look at about half of it, and then so you're trying to get through the other half of it in a room together. And there's really very little discussion at that point. You, you're sitting there, they give you a, a Samsung tablet, you, you know, you, the way you rate the work, you get a scale between kind of one to nine to look at. And, and honestly, the system that they put in place is, is unbelievably professional. You know, it tracks your voting trends. It understands um, you know, how you're looking at work from your country versus other countries, from your region, from your agency, from your group of agencies. And it's quite brilliant how it's able to kind of make sure that you're consistent in what you're doing. And then, you know, after those first two days, you, you start to look at a short list. Um, and that short list is really where the discussions start to, to ramp up a little bit. At that point, you're kind of looking at around 10% uh, of the work ended up on our short list. So you think we've whittled down 700 pieces of work down to about 70 pieces of work. And at that point, you're really starting to get a little bit emotionally attached to some of the work that you've seen or you know, some, some of your little favourites. And it's funny, there's no rhyme or reason to it. It's obviously just touched you in a, in a certain way. And you then collectively as a group, as that jury, and, and there was 10 jurors, um, and it's a, it's a really brilliant diverse jury we had. We had this you know, diversity from geography. We had people from um, the US, from Brazil, Japan, UK, Argentina, Australia in, in that room but also diverse in what part of the industry they touched. You know, we had, um, you know, senior brand executives. We had agency leaders, creative directors. We had people from charities. We had people from rights holders. And, and I guess that gave us a broad spectrum of views in that room, which is really important because when you're looking at case studies that are two minutes long, you don't always get the context that sits behind it. So to be able to ask someone from Brazil how, you know, why that makes sense and where that insight had come from was really important and powerful as you start to look through that. So, so once you've crafted your short list, you then, the last day is about sitting down and awarding the work, you know, what we say giving medal. And you've got a, a Grand Prix, which is your ultimate piece of work that kind of really typifies the, the sports marketing industry and you're really going to hire hold up as the, the most amazing piece of work that was produced and then gold, silver and bronze. And I think off the top of my head, we gave around 25, 26 awards through that. So you think of after starting with 700 to getting down to, to 25 pieces of work, that's, um, 
that's pretty serious amount of energy that goes into that. In terms of the goss, I think that you've got some pretty big personalities in those jury rooms, and I think that's why they're chosen and selected in the first place. So whilst you're collaborative and, and there was genuine respect in that room for, for everyone that got in that room, I remember seeing the list for the first time when I was when I was asked to be on the jury, and I'm like, holy hell, that's a pretty impressive group of people I'm going to be sitting there with. But you get in the room, you're emotionally attached to something, and, yeah, there's, there's definitely some arguments, there's definitely some different perspectives of, of where that comes from. And the nice part is at the end of the, the kind of four days in a room together, you've got 10 pretty good friends that you've you know, developed a whole new level of respect for and you usually stay in touch with. That's a great answer because I thought it might have been one of those ones where you answer the first part of the question but then just avoid the goss part and then I just roll into my next question. So thanks for not avoiding that. (laughs) I'm the sort of person, I've always got my brain on around marketing and communications and I will see something and I'll be inspired by it and I'll make a little bit of a note because I might be able to apply something like that or it might give me an idea for, for a client but you put in a hell of a lot of time and being exposed to a hell of a lot of ideas. Did you have a little black book or an app on your phone where your brain was just ticking over about new ideas and, and angles and things like that that you could maybe go and apply to your own client's work in the future? Absolutely. I think it's the prime reason why why you do the work. You know, you're sitting there for it's not a small commitment, you know, 150, 200 hours of actually doing that. But the exposure and what you learn in that time is just remarkable. You know, the ideas, the nuggets, the way that kind of brands have approached doing a piece of work, the thought of how a brand managed to, you know, sell that work into a rights holder or an agency managed to sell that work into a client. Um, yeah, absolutely take fairly copious notes on that. Um, it's quite a brilliant system, again, with the, the Canline system that you're now able to access the work and go back and look at the case studies of it. So it doesn't just get exposed to people that are in that jury room. You're able to go and look at this work. And we don't do that enough as an agency or, or as, a, as an industry. We don't take that time to look at work. We are always churning and running collectively everyone's got deadlines and timelines to look at and to be able to stop and and, and look at the caliber that we can collectively produce as an industry it's, it's awesome outstanding now off air before i hit the record button we were talking about the parameters and i was going to ask you that overall in judging the entertainment lines for sport you had five key parameters to judge each submission but you tell me that as a, a jury you came up with those parameters yourself yeah, it was the first part of the process for us, actually. Um, it's really hard when you're comparing all the different work that comes from the different mediums. How are you going to compare a piece of outdoor to a piece of content that's done to a beautiful, good-crafted film to, to a small stunt with a brand that had $20,000 to produce it? So for us as a group, we had to come up with a lens that we were able to, to look at what were the parameters that we wanted to be able to do it for. And the first ones really was about, you know, this is can for us, it's the epitome of creativity in the industry. And if we're going to reward something, it's got to have this notion of quality attached to it. And that quality, I think, in a lot of other mediums, particularly something like film, is, is referred to as craft. And, and that really talks about the quality or the techniques and how aesthetically pleasing a piece of work is. But that's really different. Craft is really different for a sponsorship because it's not just about beautiful work and it's not just about the techniques that you use. Um, So we had to shape what we thought that would be. And so we came up with, I guess, our own criteria that really meant that the craft of sponsorship was 
how well it worked tapped into the sporting zeitgeist that was happening at the time, how much fan, fan value it added and, and was able to integrate into a fan's experience. Was there a clear role for the brand in doing all of that and, and using sport as a platform to tell that story? And they were really these criteria that we're able to look at because especially at the top end when you're trying to find the difference between a piece of work that you may deem as a silver or a gold lion, you really need to have something to be able to assess it against. So there were five key parameters, and I wanted to work through each one individually. I think we've just covered off the first one, a base level of quality and craft. But the second parameter was integration that adds fan value. This seems to be a golden pot at the end of the rainbow for most brands. If we're getting to an age where in sport there's a plethora of advertising and messaging going on around us and always touching us and trying to get our attention, how can brands make sure they add to a fan experience rather than distract the fan from the sport? That's it. You've got to earn the attention. You know, there's a level of work that has to go into what's it going to take for me to earn the attention of that fan. And I think in some ways it's remarkably simple and in some ways it's really complex. And it comes down to knowing your audience and knowing not just how or where or what they do as fans, because I think these things and this demographic data is is a fairly hygiene factor and fairly easy to access these days. I think the the brands that are doing it best, they understand why fans are fans. And, And that part's really remarkable when you start to look at what's the difference psychographically between a a football fan and a gaming fan or a Fortnite fan um, to a tennis fan. And then you look at the geographic difference of it because a football fan in China is going to be motivated and and psychologically interested in sport in a very different way to a football fan in South America. And once we can understand that audience, then you see this, this caliber of work that gets produced and, I think that's what the best brands did that we saw some of this work. I think Microsoft did an amazing job with their football decoded campaign. Um, They had, they were really launching their their partnership and their launch of the FIFA 2018 game, but they couldn't use any FIFA products because Sony already had them. So they went and sponsored Real Madrid Football Club and they integrated live football, but they used that as the mechanism to actually launch their their eSport game. And they started then putting up the on their LED signage and through their social media, they actually decoded what the players were doing on the field by what they would be doing by pressing buttons on the Xbox controller. And you just saw this come to life through the commentators that they did a media deal with. You saw that in kind of user-generated content. You saw that on the pitch signage. They took print ads and described a match report using Xbox controllers. And that level of detail, when you talk about fans of football, who are also obviously going to be, in most cases, fans of playing FIFA, they just tapped into that integration brilliantly. That's an amazing example. And it starts to sort of cross over into the third parameter, which was understanding the nuances of sport and fandom. I'd imagine that this requires brands to have a fairly large degree of flexibility and adaptability because those nuances might not easily align with the brand themselves. Would you say that many brands understand this element to its full extent or do many brands still just try and impose themselves on a rights holder and the fans? I think they understand it. I I really do. And I think the brands that are really engaging with partnerships in the best way absolutely get that. I think it's harder when you have 
brand planning and you have cycles that you're trying to toggle that against and you have sales periods and you have budget controls. So you're working all of these things at the same time as wanting to be agile and adaptive and be able to capture a moment for, for brands. And I think that's not always an easy balance, but if you can do it effectively, well, then you become embedded in the sport itself. And uh, I think one of the pieces of work that really shone um, that we saw at Can was, was by um, – AB InBev and Budweiser, and it was around Dwayne Wade. And Dwayne Wade's an NBA star, for, for those that don't know, that he's in retiring this year, and as part of his retirement year, he's gone to, you know, during every match that he's played, every game that he's played, he swapped his jersey with one of the members of the, the opposite team. And he's created this wall in his house that he's hung all these jerseys on. And, and it's become something that's just captured the conversation of NBA fans and what's happening. So Budweiser actually did a campaign and a beautiful piece of content where they surprised Dwayne Wade with five jerseys that he hadn't really considered before. And, and they had him on a basketball court. And he was, you know, unbeknownst to Dwayne, these were people whose lives that he touched that he hadn't really realized. So from actually the sister of, um, a guy that was shot in in a school that he um, Dwayne Wade actually wrote the guy's name on his shoe before he played a game to a girl that graduated college through a scholarship program that Dwayne Wade had set up all the way through to his mum who had um, it comes out in a piece of work and I don't want to give it away for everyone there and had a pretty troubled life and and Dwayne you know was there to support her in her time of need so. Not only did they produce a highly emotional piece of content, but they tapped into something that was already happening from this jersey swap and fans were already interested in. So when you think about a beer company that's actually trying to align themselves with a current athlete, that's incredibly difficult and they nailed it. And I have seen that uh, video or that part of that campaign and I think one of the really good things about it is a lot of those people that come and present a jersey to Dwayne is that we can relate to some of those things. We might know of somebody who's had a troubled upbringing or they've had a family member who's had some troubles and they've been inspired by sport. And so we can sort of relate to it a little bit or, or, or at least potentially put ourselves in their shoes. So it becomes really powerful. But thank you for not giving it away because I've just made a note here on my pad that I will put a link to that in the show notes once we uh, send this show live. So listeners, make sure you go and check that out. That is uh, quite a good campaign to take a look at and watch that video. Take some tissues with you. (laughs) That's right. And it starts again. It's really interesting because these parameters, I feel, don't actually exist in a silo a lot of things that you talk about they start to cross over because the fourth parameter was brand storytelling and we've spoken about the power of storytelling on this podcast before a number of times both as a standalone subject and just throughout various chats that we have with staff and for people so we're clearly all for it but do you think brands need to go as deep as to linking their sponsorship efforts and execution to a specific message within storytelling for the sponsorship to actually be successful? Or can it be successful with just no brand storytelling at all? I think there's layers of success when you look at that. And I think some brands or, or even products are going to be easier to integrate into a story um, than, than others. I think the unique part about sport is that some of this work that gets produced around that we're able to kind of look at in a way that elevates the brand or elevates the product through the platform of sport and and why we've got a reason for saying that. 
you know, there's some brilliant examples of that storytelling and, and the art of storytelling that went into it. There was a, a campaign out of Spain called Heroes of Today that was produced by La Liga. And again, this one's a little bit of a, a surprise twist on it, so I won't give it away. But the, the storytelling involved in this beautiful black and white film, two, three-minute film, set in Nazi Germany is just remarkable. Um, and the way that they were then able to tell a story through that. But... Um, I think what we did see was brands that were able to do that within the esports world. That was even more remarkable. You know, how do you integrate product into this gaming world that's got a really dedicated and, and unique group of fans that are passionately engaged in the game? And how can we actually tell your story through that? And, and Wendy's, who, I mean, personal opinion, and I'm sure shared by many others, probably the best social brand in the world. Um, a remarkable campaign called Keeping Fortnite Fresh. And I think you see a lot of brands integrating or trying to play a role within games like Fortnite, and it's a fairly well-trodden path. But um, Wendy's absolutely brilliantly found a way to engage the gamers that were playing the game at the time by inserting an existing character into the game that looked a lot like their red-headed brand character. And she went around destroying freezers that had burgers in them. And the, the product message she was getting across from here was, Wendy's don't do frozen beef. And when you think about that, the, the, the brief that would have come from that, I'm, sure, I'm, sure, I'm not sure there would have been one, but when you look at how that would have worked, what a remarkable way to tell a product story within a game that caused huge, huge popular reaction. I can only imagine that point in a meeting where everybody's kicking around ideas and, and somebody finally has this really great spark of an idea just like that and they're trying to get everybody to shut up and, and listen, listen, no, 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 I think I've got it. And then they throw it out, everybody's eyes just light up and, and think that it's just amazing and then they, they run with it. It must be an amazing feeling to, to get that out and then get everybody on board and then actually execute it well like you just described. So... Finally, the fifth parameter was boldness and bravery. There can be a common misconception that boldness or maybe trying something creative requires big budgets. And no doubt that isn't always true. There's always exceptions. But do you think that generally as a norm, it's true? No, I don't actually. I think that budget gives you scale. And sometimes scale is a way of being bold and brave, but I don't think it's actually gives you the actual impact of what you're talking about. Again, a great piece of work that came out of Brazil, They it was called The Distracted Goalkeeper, and it was by Uber, and Uber were trying to share the message about you know the dangers of tweeting or, or texting whilst driving. And the way they actually did that you know, in Brazil, obviously football's the number one passion, so they partnered with a football team and then specifically a goalkeeper. And just before kickoff in a, in a televised match, the goalkeeper's texting on his mobile phone that he had hidden right next to him. And that was caught by the cameras and caught by everyone. And there's huge uproar about what on earth this, this kind of professional sports person was doing so distracted you know, during, the, during a match. And then after the game, it all started to come out and he did a live press conference where he actually said, yeah, how disgraceful it is that he was so distracted at that time. But why are people getting so angry about that when they don't get angry about people texting whilst driving? And they unveiled that it was a campaign by Uber. And, and that campaign, hugely bold and brave. I mean, I think if that had come across our desk at our agency, I, I think we would have said we couldn't convince 
you know, a football club to do that piece of work or a brand to do that piece of work. So the fact it got made and not at a significant budget was remarkable. And it's so it's so simple. And I think it's one of those campaigns that makes, I think anyone I've talked to from an agency world in, in the industry really jealous that you wish you'd done that one. But scale also can have that impact. And I think there's the, the one campaign that we awarded a Grand Prix and, and the work that really kind of captivated a lot of the world was Nike's Dream Crazy campaign. And, and it's funny you talked about in your question about, you know, imagine sitting there in the boardroom and the conversation that would have around this. And you just think about that conversation that went at Nike that said, we partner the NFL and two days before the season launches, we want to actually launch an ad spot that features Colin Kaepernick, who's currently suing the NFL. So you're one of our biggest sponsors and we're about to hero the message of someone that's trying to sue you. When you talk about bravery, um, you know, I don't think it gets much bigger than that. And that for us as a jury was one of the big discussion points when we looked at how a brand took a huge risk and, and, and the outcomes and rewards for taking that risk in a, in a beautiful piece of work that had a, a huge social message that went with it that probably got aided by the fact that the president of America tweeted against it, um, that gave it extra momentum that sat there. Um, and, and again, I think it's a piece of work that, that anyone in the industry would have loved to have been involved in. Some great examples there. So, okay, what advice would you give to the sponsorship teams on the boldness and bravery front who might be sitting in that boardroom wondering what to do next with their sponsorships because maybe they're just feeling a bit flat and tired with what they have in front of them? Well, I think if you're thinking about what to do with a sponsorship, you've already lost. Um, it's got to start with the objectives and the audience and where it sits. And, and I think... I say that part tongue-in-cheek because it still happens and it happens way too much. But we need to be striving to have these sweaty palms. I mean, too often agencies throw away good ideas because they don't think they can be done. Too often rights holders say no to making work that kind of pushes the boundaries because they worry about the stakeholders they've got to, they've got to consult. And to make that bold work, you, everyone's got to work together. The brands have got to be pushing for it. The agencies have got to be pushing the brands for it. And the brands have got to be pushing the rights holders for it. Otherwise, none of it gets made. And the best work we saw would have had all of that. I don't know if I'm overstepping the line here with this question. I'm sure you'll tell me if I am. But are you allowed to share with us a piece of work that you think was, was really close or, or really unlucky not to have been awarded? Uh, if I don't make it out of this room alive, then we'll, uh, we'll see where we go. But I think... The, it's fair to say that aside, the most divisive work actually wasn't the stuff that was on the cusp of being awarded. I think there was a really clear delineation between what got awarded and what didn't or what made the shortlist and what didn't. I think the real splits and the real kind of discussions took place on, on what level award on some of these. And I think one of the ones that came to mind for me when I, when I recount that, the Uber Eats Australian Open Ambush campaign, um, which was actually the only awarded work out of the Asia-Pac region was one that was really hotly debated and, and really hotly contested in that room. And, and it split such opinion because some people were sitting there saying it feels very intrusive. And, and for those of you that haven't seen the campaign, the strategy behind it was really buying the ad spot before the match of tennis came back in from the ad and actually making some content that had the players ordering dinner look like it was part of the live coverage of the sport. 
And so some some jurors felt that this was way too intrusive and, and interrupted my viewing experience and some thought it was brilliant. And it was one of those pieces of work where you just couldn't decide on and the discussion went back and forth and debates kind of went all different angles on it all and we reviewed it you know, five or six different times. And, and I think on that one, it probably had the potential to, to go a bit further than it did and it certainly got awarded in a number of other um, other streams that can outside the sports stream, but it was probably one for me that was unlucky not to have gone further. Interesting. So while you were clear on the five parameters you would judge the work against, after the process, do you now feel that those parameters were correct or did you, as you went through the process and, and judging, think, geez, that's something interesting that we aren't really judging against, a parameter that maybe will be discussed for inclusion in the future? Well, I think we created them, so we hope that the industry understands why we did that and what we're looking for. I think the next jury that comes get the chance to see if they decide to go down the same path on that. I mean, when you're the first jury, and this was the first ever can lines for sport, we're able to almost set a precedent of what's the best in class sports marketing that we're trying to encourage everybody to be doing, whether you're a brand, an agency, or a rights holder. So that was a really clear guide for us to do that. You know, you are going to tap into the zeitgeist. If you are going to kind of integrate well, if you are going to be bold and brave, then you should be producing great work. So whether that's upheld and future juries still use the same things, I think for us it was it was something that held pretty strong all the way through. What would you say were the biggest takeaways for you out of the judging experience? combination i think the the personal from a personal perspective it's it's a brilliant way to immerse yourself in the work and and really get passionate again about what we're doing in this in this industry you do get jealous of what you see produced you get hungry there's stuff here that i wish we'd done there's stuff here which i'm excited for us to be doing so so from a personal perspective that's great and the people you meet and the conversations you have is quite a remarkable experience but i think from a, a takeaway for me outside of that there was a couple of things. I think the calibre of work that's coming out of APAC or that came out of APAC was, was probably disappointing, to be fair. Um, I think there wasn't a lot of work that got shortlisted. There wasn't there was only one piece of work that got awarded. And sitting in that room and probably feeling like I would have loved to have seen more, that was a fair result. That was the calibre of work when you compared it on a global scale. And when you think you've got you know, huge major events coming to this region in the next couple of years. We've got a Rugby World Cup in Japan. We've got an Olympics in Tokyo. The calibre of work that needs to come out of this part of the world needs to needs to improve, um, and I think we've all got a role to play in that. I think that there's creative potential that still needs to be explored outside of the mainstream sports. I think we saw a lot of work in football, we saw a lot of work in NBA, and we saw very little work outside of some of these huge mainstream global sports. And I think brands, it's easy to get involved in those sports because of the scale and the impact and the way you're able to have. I think the path to creativity and, and great work that sits outside that remit is something we should all be exploring. And that probably includes esports. I think the caliber of work we saw in the world of esports, the top end of that work was epic. It was so good and so remarkable. And yet there was very little consistency in the calibre of work. So I expect that we're going to see that's going to improve over the next few years. As you said, it was the first year and you had over 700 entries. Do you think that number's going to grow significantly maybe next year or in the year after? No question. I think that the, even the organisers at Canline would have been surprised at that level of entries in year one. 
um, to have 700 entries in sport. That took it past the number of entries in music that's now been around for a few years and, and also the branded entertainment category, which used to be a branded content category. It took it past both of those. So when you think about that, I think uh, that, that's a huge huge pool of entries for year one that's going to grow people become more aware that it's on people see the caliber of work that's come out and feel that they'll be able to kind of have work that compares or should be recognized like that so i think you're going to see some pretty significant jumps in this so ben if brands want to get involved in future years i kind of feel like you've you've spoken so well about all the things that were good about the award so that's what they should be focusing on uh, to improve or, or make changes because as you said the work coming out of apac was pretty disappointing but are there any improvements or changes that you think they need to be making to their their execution efforts in order to give them a good chance at success on the awards front in the future i think honestly it's brands shouldn't be focused on winning the awards. I mean, if they focus on the caliber of work and integrating in the right way and hitting the zeitgeist and, and being bold and brave, they're going to create successful sports campaigns. And the rewards are just a recognition of that success. They're not the reason for doing it. And I think sometimes the industry forgets that. It's a good point. It's like word of mouth in any marketing. It's a byproduct of doing good work. Now, you are probably the same as us here at Core in that when you are watching sport, you have one eye on the event and one eye on the brands activating within the event. Now that you've been a judge for the Entertainment Lines for Sport, are you also secretly judging all the sponsorship and campaign activations you see? No question. That's been something that um, it's probably been a blessing and a curse since you, you first entered the industry and peeked behind the curtain of what happens. I think... I'm fortunate enough that I'm still a huge sport fan and, and particularly when I watch my Sydney Swans, I'm able to kind of not look at anything else except for what's happening on the field. But outside from that, you, you're always aware of what's happening. You're always looking out for how brands are pushing the boundaries. You're always looking to what could be done a bit differently. So, yeah, it's hard to turn that one off. Ben, if people want to find out more about the entertainment lines for sport, what can they do? I'd head to Canline website, so canline.com, and also sign up. There's a link through there that you're able to watch the work, and I can't say that enough for anyone involved in the industry just to see the range of work that you wouldn't have seen coming from countries in South America, from out of Europe. Um, I think that's a really good way for us to, to be inspired and kind of push the industry forward. There are also there's Spikes Asia that's coming in, in Singapore. That happens in September. So I'd keep an eye out for that, um, both from an awards perspective, but also from the content that's produced around that and the, the educational work that's done. So if you're able to get to Singapore, I'd recommend that for sure. Excellent. And, and we will definitely put a link to canline.com in the show notes. And if people want to connect with you or learn more about Octagon, how do they go about that? Sure. Um, our website's octagon.com and otherwise I'm happy to take emails. It's just ben.hartman at octagon.com. Very good. Ben Hartman, Managing Director, APAC at Octagon and Entertainment Lines for Sport Judge. Thank you so much for taking us inside the first year of the Entertainment Lines for Sport. Thanks, Daniel. Appreciate it. It was really clear that Ben got so much out of that experience of being a judge and found it really enjoyable. And I hope you are inspired by some of the examples Ben spoke about. Make sure you head along to coresoftware.com where in the show notes for this episode, I'll put loads of links and videos around what Ben spoke about in that chat. 
That's about all we have time for for episode 73. Don't forget, if you'd like to say hi and get a shout out, be sure to get in touch and I'll make that happen. If you want to connect with me, you can do so on LinkedIn. Just search for Daniel Oyston or drop me an email at daniel at sponserve.net or on Twitter using the handle at sponserve. And if you want to connect with Core Software's commercial manager for Australasia, Daniel Ferguson Hill, you can catch him on daniel.ferguson at coresoftware.com or search for him on LinkedIn as well. Don't forget, you can follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter and Instagram, just search for Sponsurve. Until next time, I'm Daniel Oyston. Thanks for listening to Inside Sponsorship. Thanks for listening to the show. For more episodes and to subscribe to the show, search for Inside Sponsorship on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts or wherever it is you listen to your podcasts. Also, for more free industry-specific resources, including blogs, ebooks, white papers, and our Insights newsletter, head to coresoftware.com. Finally, be sure to follow Core Software on Twitter and LinkedIn.